Well, good morning. Uh, last few weeks we've been in this series called I Know a Guy. And uh, the background on that is uh, just that whenever something's broken or we're up against it or something needs attention or something needs fixed, we all know a guy. So if, you're, if your heating goes out at your house, you know who to call. You have someone on speed dial or if you don't know what company to call or what handyman to call in that situation, you know someone who does. So in any situation, we tend to know a guy. Uh, when I was in college, I lived off campus, and I decided that I was going to invite a bunch of my friends over to the house to, uh, to make a nice dinner. And I was going to make a turkey dinner, selfishly because I really like turkey dinner. And it gave me an excuse to have a mass load of leftovers in my fridge. But I realized after I invited everybody to the house that I didn't know how to make a turkey. And uh, so I had, I had invited all these people over for turkey dinner. So I speed dialed my mom and had her walk me through the process of how to make a turkey. And then shortly thereafter, I had to call her again and ask her how to make stuffing. And uh, so it was, it was a process. But in that situation, I knew a guy and uh, it happened to be my mom. And uh, not that my mom's a guy, but, you know. Uh, so we all know a guy. And we were subtitling this series, I, I Know a Guy, yes, but... Uh, living out the gospel in a broken culture. We live in a culture that is, uh, is spewing out a bunch of lies to us. And truth can only be found at its source, at its definition, and that is Christ. And so the first week we looked at um, Jordan came... And, we didn't just look at Jordan. We, uh, we do that sometimes. But, uh, but Jordan spoke and, and we looked at what does it look like to live together when we don't always agree with one another. And uh, instead of polarizing ourselves and digging in our heels and saying, I'm right and you're wrong, and then just arguing with each other, what does it look like through the lens of the gospel to live in a culture when we don't always agree with one another, even when we're on the same side of the aisle? Then we looked at the sanctity of human life. We didn't just look at abortions. We looked at all human beings. If we say that, that we're pro-life, if we say that, that lives matter, then that has to cover all facets of life, not just the unborn. We looked at how we need to treat human beings the way Christ did, and Christ was willing to lay down His life for us. So what does it look like for us to love and treat people the way Christ treats us? Last week we looked at sexual brokenness, a culture that is just broken when it comes to God's definition of what, what this looks like. And uh, this word picture came to me one day as I was just studying for the sermon and I said it last week, but in the garden when there was a perfect existence, God created the whole world. God created plants and animals and then he created man, then he created woman, then he gave sex. And so... In God's perfect existence, that was the order, and that matters, because anything outside of that is not what God wants and God desires. So we, we addressed sexual brokenness last week and said, how can we live in a culture like that without believing those lies? How can we stay on pace to look at what Christ defines things as? And then, how do we interact with each other whenever we know that we all fail in some regard when it comes to God's holy and perfect bullseye, for lack of better termination ter terms. So we've been looking at these things, hitting them kind of hard, and, and trying to address what it looks like to live in a broken culture, a culture that is consistently at times trying to spoon-feed us or force-feed us lies 
that do not reflect the heart of God. I'm guessing you're in this place today because you desire to hear a message counter to what the world feeds us. I mean, the pulpit shouldn't exist to agree with what the world says. The pulpit should exist to counter what the world says. The pulpit exists to be able to open the pages of God's Word and to communicate truth. So that's what we want to do. So the, the whole thing of we know a guy is we live in this broken culture where we know the salve to fix it. Anyone know what I'm talking about if I say Watkins Petrocarbo salve? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Nobody knows? I said raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, thank you, the two people. So uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll explain it. Watkins is this company where you can really buy anything. I'm sure it was the guy that was selling like snake oil out of a wagon behind a horse back in the day. But uh, then it turned into one of these buy-at-home things where you would have a, a show at your house and people would buy things from you. Well, my grandmother swore by Watkins Petrocarbosav, and uh, so did my parents. So anything, anything that happened to me as a kid, injury-wise, could be healed and fixed by Petrocarbosav. So if I had a, a splinter, my dad knew that I would ball my eyes out if I tried to dig it out, so he would get this salve, and he'd put it on, and he says, it's a drawing salve, it will draw it out. I don't know if that ever worked, but I, I believed him. You know, if you had, it was like, uh, have you ever seen the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? And the grandpa on it, he can fix anything with Windex, right? Just sprays Windex on it, and that fixes everything, Right? So I'm not talking about that kind of salve where we can come up with this like thing where it's, it's funny, but some people swear by it, right? Like I know people that Bragg's apple cider. I mean, that is the thing. If you, you take a shot of Bragg's apple cider every day, you will never have to go to the doctor again, and you'll never get sick. And people swear by that kind of stuff. Essential oils are the new thing. You know, everybody swears by this, and this is what's going to fix you. And, and, uh, and I think some people get benefits from all of these things. But what we're talking about is that Jesus comes and offers this ultimate salve to our broken culture. It is the fix-all. It is the thing that solves our problems. It doesn't fix the fact that we live in a broken culture. It just gives us hope and an answer. It gives us a new destination. It gives us a new way of living our lives within that broken culture. Because the facts are the facts. We live here. They're not alternative facts. They're facts. We live here. We live amongst our neighbors and our family. And all around us, we're going to be in relationships, have some form of brokenness to them. And each one of us has a unique story and a unique situation and a unique testimony before God. And we can all testify to our own examples and our own personal hearts and lives of what brokenness felt like for us. When we receive Christ and we understand the gospel, we get a fix to that brokenness, but it doesn't change our circumstances. We still live here. And until we stand before God in eternity, we will live in a broken culture. The gospel demands us to live within that broken culture differently. So that's what we want to talk about. So... The, the key here to remember, no matter what topic we're talking about, is we haven't just been given the salve. We've been given the authority to hand it out. We haven't just been given this salve that fixes the brokenness of our culture. We've been given the authority to distribute it to the masses. It's not in its testing phase. 
It's not something that there's a limited supply on, so you shouldn't share it. We've been given the ultimate fix to a broken culture, and we've been given the authority and the license to distribute it to all of humanity. So today, with that in mind, we're going to look at what does it look like to live in a financially broken culture. We're going to do this for two weeks. This week we're going to look at uh, the cultural problem of homelessness and poverty, the down and outs, the downtrodden. At times what we would deem the outcasts of society. Like I said last week, I'm not huge believer in all statistics. I think at times we can use them as a crutch to prove a point and, uh, and not talk about the heart behind them. I think sometimes, depending on where you look, statistics can be horribly skewed in one direction or another. This is an organization that tracks uh, poverty and homelessness throughout America, and they update their statistics every seven months because the numbers change so fast. These numbers were current as of October 2016, so listen to these. The estimated number of homeless people in America as of October 2016 was 1,750,000. That's an estimated number. The average monthly income for a homeless individual in America, as of October 2016, monthly income, was $348. The percent of homeless that have been homeless for more than two years is 30%. So, if you... Look at these numbers, they can be very depressing, they can be hard to swallow, but they're still, it's raw data, it's real. This isn't fabricated, this isn't something that's out there that we sometimes hear about. This is, this is real life, this is actually happening right now as we sit here today, these numbers are real. Number of children in the U.S. who live below the poverty line are 12 million. The homeless homeless population is made up of certain demographics. And uh, from as far as they can track in this, single men make up 44% of that population, single women 13%, and families with children make up 36% of the homeless population in America. Minors that have nobody accompanying them, kids on the streets on their own, is 7% of this one and three-quarter million number. So to say that it's not a problem is ignorant at best. So what is, when we're presented with this and we know it's a reality and we know this is a world we live in, now that's just talking about homelessness, but we're talking about poverty, people living below the poverty line. And it depends on who you ask what they deem the poverty line to be. But the number of Americans who now live in hunger or on the edge of hunger, let's look at that. People who are going without a regular meal on a regular basis, 31 million people. These are estimated numbers based on raw data because it's hard to quantify some of it. So this is the world we live in. Maybe you don't live in a place where as you walk into your apartment building, there are homeless people on the sidewalk in front of your building begging for change. Maybe that's not where you and I live. But this is the world that we live in. 
This is the America that we live in. And those are just American statistics. You take those statistics, poverty and homelessness, to a global scale because the gospel requires us to live in a global community, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world is where Jesus commanded us to take this gospel message. So we can't just look at it from our own American lens, right? We're not American Christians. We're Christians who happen to live in America. And there's a huge difference in that. That's a sermon in and of itself. So when we look at the world, those numbers jump drastically. But for the sake of today, let's look at the numbers, the raw data that is right in front of us. Now, whenever I hear these statistics or you hear these statistics, there's natural responses to the problem whenever it's presented to us. You hear it. You read about it, you see it, and there's natural responses to that. And this is not an exhaustive list. But here are four things that I tend to see in myself at times and tend to hear from the rest of humanity that I get the opportunity to interact with uh, about the response when you hear data like this, when you hear statistics like this, when you hear the topic brought up. Maybe the response is, they deserve it. They deserve it. Listen, I didn't choose a drug addiction for them. I didn't choose alcoholism for them. They chose that for themselves. They drank away their employment. They were given many chances. If that's what the life that they got for themselves, that's the life they got for themselves. That attitude, I would say, falls in the category of zero compassion. Maybe the response is, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this problem. No one should be homeless. Admirable admirable as that is, I would call that hyper-compassion, the opposite of the first reaction. Hyper-compassion can kick in and burn you out quickly when you realize that it's too daunting for you to fix on your own. Number three, the response maybe could be, I don't know about that. I don't know anything about that. I, don't, I, don't, I just try not to pay attention. I just try not to listen. You know, when the bald guy with the white beard comes on and the black and white commercial comes on and he starts talking about for as much as a dollar a day, I turn the channel. That's me. I would categorize that response into the ignorance category. And then the fourth is similar to the third. It's just, I realize it's true. I just don't care. It doesn't have any personal impact on my day to day. I'm not homeless. No one in my family is homeless. No one in my family suffers from poverty. Therefore, it's not something that I really think about or have to think about. And I would categorize this into the category of turning a blind eye. Like I said, that's not an exhaustive list. But falling into those categories or subcategories where we could fall somewhere in between the two or the three or the four. The fact of the matter is, these are facts. This is real life. And this is the world we live in. The gospel demands us have a response to a broken culture. And in any situation, no matter how broken it sounds or feels or is, we have the ultimate fix at our disposal and we've been given the authority to distribute it. So that begs the question, what about us? For us to properly understand our place in this particular topic We have to understand something vitally important when it comes to understanding the gospel. And I think we can find that in 1 Peter. 
Let's go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you can go into the Bible study, ladies, you have been going through this at an exhaustive level, I'm sure, and this is something that maybe you have already talked about. Maybe some of you could probably articulate it better than I am going to this morning, which kudos to you. If you're using the Bible in front of you, it's page 702. Again, I'll say that uh, if you're using that Bible and and, uh, you would like to keep it, take it with you. If you know someone who needs a Bible, please give that to them. We'd love to get uh, God's Word in as many hands as possible. It's a gift from us. Don't feel guilty by taking one or two of those. Page 702. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. I don't know what version you have in front of you. If you're using the one in the pocket, it's the same one I'm reading from. It's ESV. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Listen to what Peter writes. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You might be wondering, why that? Why that passage? Or how does this pertain to me? Because to completely understand a proper response to this particular topic, we have to understand where we once were. Where we once were, were homeless, poverty-stricken people in need of dire rescue. No place to call home. According to how Peter words it, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what reason? That you may go and proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. To understand completely who we are, we have to understand who we were. We were poverty-stricken people without a place to call home. We were wandering in darkness utter darkness before Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, that's the, that's the reality that you live in. That's the reality that I lived in before I met Christ. 
as a place where I couldn't call home, a place where I couldn't lay my head, a place where I didn't receive mercy and grace, a place where I didn't have hope. But God called me out of that darkness and into His marvelous light. For what reason? Why would He do that? Why why would He do that? Well, because of His great love for us. And that goes back to the heart of God in the beginning when He created us. He did not need us. He created us to worship Him and to live with Him. And we broke that covenant. So He sent His Son to bring us back into relationship with Him. And that salve is what we're talking about. When we say the salve, we're talking about the truth and the reality that Jesus died to bring us back into right relationship with the world around us. We were once the homeless ones. We were once the ones with no nation. We were once the ones without a place to call home. In Christ, we found a home. In Christ, we found hope. In Christ, we received mercy. And so we are to take that now and give it, live it out amongst people. He says in here that we're sojourners and exiles. Meaning, now that you have a home, the ironic twist in events here is now that you have a home, you're an exile. You don't belong here. That's what culture is going to tell you. See, because you were now made, you were made for something bigger than this world. Now the doors of eternity have been opened to you and you see your true residency. You see where you are to live for all eternity and it's at Jesus' side with Him for all eternity. Now, knowing that that is your true home, you are only here temporarily. So as you're here, what do you do? Now you look at your life before Jesus and you stay away from the things that pulled you away from Jesus and you run towards the things that pull you towards Jesus. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles or keep your conduct amongst those who don't know Jesus honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So now what? Knowing that we were once the ones who were in darkness, we were once the ones who were left without hope, we were the ones who didn't experience mercy, we were those ones. We were the ones on the pavement, covered up in as much covering as we could get and sleeping, waiting to be rescued from our situation. We were those people. We were. We were the ones who were in darkness. We were the ones who needed rescued. So let's make the leap to say that we are all under that grace. We understand it. We live in it. If you're here today worshiping with us and singing these songs to Jesus and understanding what we're talking about, that hopefully that means you understand the redemptive work that was done on the cross. And you're here today to celebrate it, worship in it, and to know deeper about it, to celebrate that in community, and then to walk outside these doors and live that out in your daily lives. Maybe you're here today and you don't know that truth at a heart level. Hopefully today changes that. But if you are here today, and this is a reality for you, the next so what, the next now what question has to be answered. 
We have to have direction here. There's a lot of places we could go to look at what Jesus would have said is necessary for us to do with this information. There are a lot of responses that we could look at. The one I want to look at today is in Luke chapter 10. If you're using the Bible uh, that's here, that's page 599. Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 25 through 37. So Jesus is teaching here. And in verse 25, it starts out by saying this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this. And you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is a really deep parable. This is one that has deep meaning. It would have meant a whole lot to this lawyer who's asking, this master of the law would have understood Jesus' Uh, word picture here. See, the Samaritans were the land north. And they were people who didn't follow all of the Levitical law and all of the law and follow the priests. And they didn't know uh, God the way that the Jews uh, desired them to. And so they viewed them as lower human beings. They viewed them as uh, the enemy. So when... Jesus uses the, the picture of a priest, holy teacher of the law, comes upon this man, realizes that he's hurt, wounded, and half dead, steps to the other side of the road, and keeps walking. A Levite, someone who also would have known the law, and known uh, what the church and the temple were teaching, turned to the other side of the road and kept walking. But a Samaritan who they would have viewed as an enemy or a second-class citizen, the worst of the worst, saw this man and stepped in and didn't just help him. He went above and beyond, right? He didn't just help the man on the side of the road and call someone else for assistance. He helped him, nursed him back to as much health as he could and then put him on his own animal and walked him back to the closest inn and, and then put, 
put him under good care and then paid for all of that care. Not only that, but came back to check on him later. So when Jesus says to love your neighbor, now the, the ironic thing in here is Jesus never looked at the man and said the answer to the question, love your neighbor. The man who tried to entrap Jesus answered that question. So Jesus says, go and do likewise. Or Jesus says, um, to the, the first question was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asks a question. He gives the answer. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The guy wanted to justify himself. So he said, well, who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells this story. And then he asks the bomb question. Which one, which one showed him mercy? Which one was the one that treated him like a neighbor? And the man says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do the same. But what's the heart motivation behind it? Is this our response to this in particular question of poverty and homelessness and the downtrodden in our society? Is our response like this Samaritan? Is our response to be the one who knows that the person that needs my help the most is someone who has not looked at me positively, maybe his entire life? See, because religion is often linked to arrogance, pride, and snobbery. That's what religion is linked to in our culture. Pride, arrogance, snobbery, country club Christianity. These aren't terms that came out of the church. They were terms that came onto the church. And that's how the world views religion culture we live in but jesus is linked to humble authority loving kindness grace mercy etc 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 so i have to deduce that our broken culture in which we live doesn't need to see religious people doing kind things our culture doesn't need to see religious people doing nice things our broken culture needs to see a radical love of Jesus who willingly died on a cross for all of humanity lived out in front of them by the followers of that very same Jesus who are indwelled with His Spirit. And there's a big difference. If religion compels us to do nice things and it's not linked to Jesus, then it is a dead-end road. We shouldn't want to take away people's temporal problems. We should want to give humanity the salve that we've been given the license to distribute to humanity. So what should I do? You know, the problem with a message like this is it's really easy to want to stand up and say, here's five or six things that I think we could do in response to a homelessness problem or a poverty problem. And I don't even necessarily think I'd be wrong for doing that. 
I don't think there would be anything wrong with me doing that. When I stop and think about this, in our context where we live, I had to ask myself if I had deep convictions about this and went to someone and said, what can I do? What would I need most for them to say back to me? Not what would I hope they said to me. Not here's the toolbox, here's the instruction manual on how to use the tools, now go put them into practice. What would I need? What would my heart need for them to say to me? And I think I would need to be challenged to pray. I think I would be need, need to be challenged to take the information and pray. Not only pray, because that can be used as a cop-out. I'm going to pray about that. That's Christianese usually for I'm not really going to do anything. But I would say pray. What should I do? Pray. Pray that God develops a passion and a zeal and a tenderness to the cross-section of humanity you get to be in contact with. Pray that God gives you a deep love and desire to minister to the people around you that are broken, lost, and downtrodden. Pray that God develops that passion in you, that He gives you eyes to see it, ears to hear it, and opportunities to be Him, be His hands and feet. One simple internet search can lead you to 20 different resources that are worth giving your time to. And if you want to go deeper than that, then let's have a conversation. I believe by population, Philadelphia is the fourth largest city in the United States. And we live 13 miles away from Center City. One walk through Center City. Now, I know several people in this room that maybe would say, oh, I hate going downtown. I hate going down there. I hate the traffic. It's too crowded, too many people. Um, the people that tell Megan and I, you've been in the city more in the two years you've lived here than I have my entire life. And I've lived here my entire life. Maybe you don't see this. Maybe you don't see poverty. Maybe you don't see homelessness. And maybe a good way for you to experience it and to understand that it's a problem is to go where you can see it. To volunteer your time somewhere where it's being addressed. To get to know your neighbors because guaranteed there are people in your neighborhood that are suffering with some form of what our world deems as poverty. God has made us a wealthy people. Financially, we have more than the rest of the world. Some of us in this room have more than others. So pairing with this week, next week, we're going to talk about that. What's our view of what we have? We have it. Is it ours or is it God's that we've been given the privilege to steward on His behalf? You see, if we believe that Jesus did what we say He did on the cross for the reasons in which he said, we say He did them, that demands a response from us. That demands a lifestyle from us where we want to live out His attributes in relationship with those around us.
So there has to be a Christian response to the plight of the culture we live in. The cross demands that. And I'll come back to this. Our response cannot be turning a blind eye. Our response can be anything but that. But we have to pray. We have to know the heart of God. We have to understand this. And then we're required to respond to it. In some way, shape, or form, each one of us is responsible when we see the man on the side of the road to interact with him the way Jesus interacts with him or her. So what does it look like for us to do that? As individuals and as a church? Those are questions we have to wrestle with. Those are questions we have to find answers to. And if we're finding those answers anywhere but the cross, we're looking in the wrong places. So let's understand what Jesus did for us on the cross. Let's live that out in community. Let's live that out together. Let's live that out individually. Because we've been given this salve. We know a guy. And he's given us the license to distribute the answer. How are we doing with that? God, thank you for the truth, the realities of Scripture. That there is responsibility that comes with this realization. There is responsibility that comes with it. But it's not a burden that's hard to carry. It should be a joy-filled task that we get to live in. We get to live in this light where we've been redeemed from the mess of our own sin. That's where we get to live. We have hope. We are no longer living in darkness. We've been called out of darkness into your marvelous light. We were once wanderers and sojourners that didn't have a nation. We were a people who had no nation, no place to call home. And you called us out of that and into your marvelous light. And you are fabricating for us a home in eternity. You will call us to. We are citizens of heaven if we know you. With that knowledge, God, give us the desire to take that salve and distribute it to humanity. To figure out in our own hearts what is our responsibility to this broken culture we live in. What can we do and how can we do it? Knowing that you are a great God, all-sufficient and all-powerful. Knowing that you are full of grace knowing that you have all the answers and knowing that you have provided us a way out. I pray that as we live in that, God, that we get the answers to our questions. We have ears to hear, eyes to see the world around us and the needs that are in front of us. You give us your heart to address those needs in a way that brings you the most glory and honor. 